Hey guys, uh, my name is Jordan Adams. I'm the college pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, um, I'd love to meet you. Come say hi to me after the service. I want to know your name. Thanks for being here. And yeah, as you just heard, we are in the Psalms and we're, we're going to be doing a couple mini series this summer. The first one is on the Psalms. So if you, if you have your Bible, you can flip open to Psalm 103. Otherwise, we're going to have some things on the screen. And if, if you're wondering like what the rhyme or reason is for which Psalms we pick, this is seriously how this conversation went. Drew, hey Jordan, you want to do a mini series on the Psalms? Yes. Okay, which ones you want to do? And then we just picked our favorites. Okay, so like don't look for rhyme or reason. This is just one of my favorite Psalms. I wanted to share it with you guys. Um, yeah, so let me, let me read. I'm going to focus in in particular on verses one through five. I love this. Let me, let me reread this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. This is so good. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. So this week, um, I had the chance with our, our Salt Company staff, our college ministry staff, to go to a, a conference in Ames, Iowa. And it, if you guys don't know this, our, our church is a part of a network of churches, a, a family of churches, and we want to plant churches that love both college students, but also community members that love the campus and the city and major university centers around the Midwest and hopefully throughout the entire country. And we got to go to this like collaborative conference with the Salt Company staff members from all over the Midwest. And this, this has nothing to do with anything. I just thought it was cool. So I'm sharing it with you. The, there was about 70 staff members there. And at one point they had us all stand up and then they said, okay, if you've been on staff for less than a month, sit down. And over 50% of the room sat down, which is terrifying. We are young and dumb. But it's also got me so fired up. Here's why. Because this thing is expanding so fast that we're trying to keep up with it. And, and there's new people in the room all the time because there's new places to go. And, and the places that we do have are growing. And so we got to add staff. And so that was awesome. And then we got to, for several days, hang out as a family, have a bunch of fun, and then collaborate together. Like try and help each other figure out how, what best practices are and stuff like that. And so... They would throw out questions like this to us. How do we get a hundred people on our next church plan? Okay, you've got four minutes to figure it out. Go. And then we would like whiteboard out these ideas and then we would present them to another team and then they would critique it and then we'd combine with that team and we would present it to the room, which we actually won that, by the way, because it was a competition. That's what it was about. Minneapolis brought home the trophy. Actually, Isaac Smith came through in the punch. Uh, he reminded me that that was his idea, not mine. So... Uh, yeah, but we're, we're collaborating and we're, we're talking about all this strategy, all this, this vision, and we're doing all this kind of heady strategic stuff. And, and then we just stopped. And, and I think we were all having this moment where it was like, we're a part of something huge, right? And, and one of the staff members went up and grabbed the mic and he said, guys, I think we should just sing. And there was no worship band on stage. We're standing in a bright room around like round business tables and we just acapella sang all glory be to Christ. And it was one of the most like powerful moments of worship I've had 
in a long time. Why in like a business strategy meeting do you sing? Because when you get a vision for the significance of what Jesus is doing in the world, when you get a taste of what he's like and that you get to be a part of it, words aren't enough. You got to sing. Right? When, when you actually encounter the God of the universe, it, it does something to you. And, and I want us to be a church that sings. And I mean that literally. Okay, that's why we just did what we did. It's weird to sing in public. I don't know if you know that or not. But we do that every week. But I actually mean that metaphorically. I want us to be a church that when we encounter God, it, that, that it means something to us, that we adore him, that we love him, that we're amazed by him. Now, some of you that aren't feelers are getting a little nervous here, okay? I, I like, just me and I reverse the gender stereotypes. I'm the feeler, I'm the crier, okay? So, like, I know I get a little emotive. She, right now, might be like, dude, just, just tell me what the Bible says. And that's great. That's, that's awesome. And, and we're nervous collectively about what we call like Jesus is, is my boyfriend stuff, where it just gets like too sappy and emotional. That's not what I mean. I don't just mean like hyped up emotions. I mean worship. That when you see God for who he really is, you respond to him with everything that you have. Guys, the Christian life can be, it actually has to be something more than an intellectual assent to some facts. It has to be more than a good work here or there. We have to be people who are stunned by the magnitude of who God is. So let me, let me put that in the context of Psalm 103. Let me talk about that idea through Psalm 103. Verse 13, I think, is, is the key to how we experience all of the, the benefits that are listed in Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Did you catch that? Like, dude that made the stars is calling us his kids. That, that's, that's crazy. But I think we misunderstand what it means to have God as father and therefore what it means to live as Christians. Okay, so, so when, you, when you say the word father, you can mean a couple things. The first one is a very sort of simple biological reality. Like you exist and so your, your kid exists. Like you made them, right? That's one way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have any type of significant relationship with them. You can be someone's father without having any type of relationship with them. But when we say father, we often mean a more significant and a deeper way. What we mean is that you're someone's dad. That, that like... You, you hold your little girl when she's crying, that you, that you cheer on your kid when they graduate, that, that you encourage them when they're discouraged, that you keep them on the right path, all of that stuff. But, but here's a claim that I want to make. I think almost all of us in this room know that God is our father in the first sense. In other words, that he exists so, that we, so we exist. He, he made us. But I think very few of us know how to experience him as, as father in the second sense. That very few of us know how to run into his arms, how to functionally, daily, experientially be his kid. And eternity might hang in the balance between the two. So this psalm 
tells us how to experience God like he's our dad. How to, how to relationally know him and respond to him in worship. And actually something as cool, cool is happening right now. So I, I was, when I was prepping for this this week, I was trying to find like application points. I was getting stressed out about how do I get this on the ground? How do I get this really practical? And, and I want to do some of that, but I felt like God was just saying to me, dude, do you want to just like do what this psalm says? <laughs> Can you, this psalm is about just looking at God and thinking that he's awesome. So that, like, that's what I want to do right now, together, corporately. Right now, I want to see that. So I want to I give you three benefits of having God as your dad. First one, he does not treat us the way we deserve to be treated. Second, he has compassion on us and third, he satisfies us. All right, so first one, first benefit of having God as your dad, he does not treat us the way that we deserve to be treated. Now, at first glance, that, that might seem like a bad thing, right? That he doesn't treat you the way that you deserve to be treated because we're a justice culture. We're a, we're a fairness culture. You, you see this anytime you get around kids. I, I was working in an elementary school for a year and kids never want justice when they're the ones in trouble, but they always will tell you when somebody else did something wrong, right? So this was like, this was my life. They, they, for some reason, couldn't remember my name. My last name is Adams. It's not that hard, but they couldn't remember my name. So it was always just teacher, teacher. So <laughs> teacher, teacher, Diego ate my entire lunch while I was in the bathroom. Teacher, teacher, Josh peed on my leg. Real things. <laughs> okay. And what do they want? They want justice. They want, they want something done, right? And we might not be that obvious about it, but we still have that same heart in us. We want to earn something and we want to get the reward for what we've earned. But here's the thing. Be careful to ask God for justice because he might give it to you. What would justice be for you, for me? Well, it would be what Jesus got. Jesus got justice for us. And what was that? That he, he was abandoned and alone, crying out to a father that had forsaken him. Okay, that, that's justice. But if you're in Christ, God refuses to give that to you because he already gave it to Jesus. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I know you know that, but do you know that? Like, do you feel that? Do you experience that? that? That your sin isn't counted against you. That no matter how far away from him you go, the second that you come back, he's standing there ready to receive you back. That he's not going to give you what your iniquities deserve. How does he do that? That's crazy. How does he do it? There's a verse in Colossians that I just absolutely love that I, that I wanted to throw in here. Colossians 1, 11 through 12. It says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Listen, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what you receive is not justice, abandonment. What you receive is what you don't deserve, qualification to be with God for eternity, to be a saint. And how did you receive that? Did you earn it? Did you qualify you? No. Who qualifies you? He does. 
He earns the reward and then he gives it to you. That's how he doesn't give you your iniquity. And then it keeps going in Psalm 103. We should, we should feel this. This is like, this is aloe on a sunburn, okay? This isn't just theological truth. This is like, ah, okay? Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Have you ever had a kid run up to you and trying to describe to you something that's big and they go like this, they go, it was this big and like their arms aren't long enough. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen a kid do that? I, f- I feel like that's what David is doing right here. He, he like can't get words around how big God's grace is. And so he takes infinity. How far is the east is from the west? Two diverging lines going opposite directions. Infinity is not enough to categorize the grace of God. If you are in Christ, your sin is irrelevant to your standing before him. There's consequences, yes, but your standing is always the same. Your sin can't change it. All right. Second benefit, he has compassion on us. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It's like abounding. It's, it's overflowing. Picture like a cup under a, a, a tap of water and it's just overflowing. That's his love towards us. And this is actually a reference to Exodus 34 that I wanted to, to briefly touch on this for you because we want to get the entire context of the Bible, the whole story, not just where we're at. So Exodus 34 verse 1 is talking about Moses and his inter- interaction with God. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Okay, real quick, where are we at in this story? Why is Moses breaking tablets? Okay, so what's going on? So if you don't know this story, Moses was a, a prophet who represented God's people to God. And when God gave us his 10 commandments, his sort of ways to live, he gave them to Moses. And so Moses goes up on this mountain and he actually meets with God, which is crazy. And then God writes his heart and his law onto these stone tablets. But in the few days that Moses is up on the the mountain, the Israelites, the, the supposed people of God, completely bail on God. And here's what they do. They forget that God exists entirely and they, they just make a God for themselves, which is stupid. You just made it. How, why do you think it's a God? So they make this, this golden bull and they start worshiping it. And so Moses walks down the mountain and when he sees this ridiculousness, he's so mad that he like smashes these, these tablets that God gave him. So that's the context. That's what's happening is the people of Israel has ju- have just committed spiritual idolatry on God. Okay, now verse five in Exodus 34. The Lord descended in a cloud and he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So God's about to give his, his bio, his description of what he's like. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, did God have to declare himself merciful? He just watched his people abandon him and he would have been right to come down in anger or to just never come down again to be with them. 
He could have declared himself in anger, but he declares himself in mercy. Here's the deal. We're the Israelites, right? Like hopefully not literally exactly like that. Like hopefully you don't have like a shrine in your basement with weird bulls in it, but you do worship other gods. You, You run to something to satisfy you over and over and over again. And what does God do? He comes down to you and he declares himself in mercy, not in anger. Verse four, who redeems your life from the pit. We're back in Psalm 103. Who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. A crown is, is an identity symbol. It's, a, it's a, a demonstration of who a person is. And the story over your life is not the stories that you're telling yourself of your need for success or of your failures or your worthlessness or that you're a machine that you gotta work and go and go and go. The story of your life is that you're crowned with mercy. And that's how a father relates to his kids. But I think sometimes we think that God relates to us like we're his employees, right? What's the difference between a relationship that a dad has with his kids and an employer has with his employee? Well, an employee-employer relationship is based on your performance. It's conditional, right? So if you perform well, then you, you're owed something. You deserve payment. But if you perform poorly, then that relationship can be terminated, And that's how we we try and relate to God. God, I'm going to perform for you and then you're going to owe me blessing. And so we have these, but but if I don't perform, then I'm afraid that you're going to sever relationship with me. And so we have these good days and bad days in Christianity. You have this where you like wake up, you read your Bible, you do the stuff that you're going to do and you think that God's going to bless you. And then you, you start to sin. You, you think that he's going to kind of remove himself from you. That's, that's an employee-employer relationship. But God's your dad. And what happens when your kid messes up? It actually initiates more relationship. The dad pursues. He comes after. He enters into the weakness and the suffering to bring you back. It's not conditional because it's not based on what you can do. It's not based on your character. It's based on his character. And his character is mercy abounding love. Third benefit of God as father, he can satisfy you. Satisfaction. Verse five, who satisfies you with good. Okay, so I want to talk about this. What does that promise mean? So God tells you that he will satisfy you with good things. All right, cool cars are a good thing. So is it like Lamborghini. Lamborghini's for everyone. What does that mean? Well, what is the one good thing that he'll never deny you? Okay, so let me back up. So as a Christian, will you get what you want? Sometimes, but a lot of the time you won't. Will you get what you feel is good for you? Sometimes, but a lot of the time that you won't. But what's the one good thing that he's promised to always give you? The, the, the one good thing that you can have anytime you want. It's God himself. He promises to give you himself. That's the good that he's promising in this verse. Hey, you can have me and I'm the one that satisfies. But here's the thing. We almost never actually believe that that's true. We think that sin is good 
and that it's fun. And we think that obedience is sort of bad and not very much fun. So here's what we have to do. We have to teach ourselves to be satisfied by what is actually good. We're not naturally satisfied by what's good because we're fallen human beings. And so we have to learn satisfaction in the goodness of God. So how do we do that? Through discipline and through desire. Through discipline and through desire. So the first one, discipline. We have to acquire the taste for godliness. We have to acquire the taste for godliness. So Isaac, our worship leader, loves pickles. Okay, so in, in fact, he's known for this. So there was a dude at this conference that I was at that I was talking about Isaac, and he was like, oh, Isaac, he's the guy that loves the pickles. Like, that's the defining characteristic of Isaac to him. Which is interesting, right? Because here's what pickles are. Old cucumbers. <laughs> Just old, dirty cucumbers. Well, I guess they're not dirty, but... I, but the stuff that they're floating in looks like lake water. It's just old cucumbers floating in lake water. That's what pickles are. Isaac loves them. Okay, so I grew up when I was a kid, and I looked at these things floating in this jar and went, I'm not going to eat that. That's not good. And so I didn't like pickles. But pickles are actually delicious. They're, they're salty. They're briny, right? But I didn't know that for a long time. What did I have to do? I had to acquire the taste for pickles. How do you acquire the taste for something? You just eat it over and over again. I'm currently trying to acquire the taste for olives. Olives, I don't understand their existence. They're just the worst. It sort of makes me mad. But, but like olives are in stuff and so I don't know. And they seem like a food that adults eat. So I'm trying to acquire the taste for olives. So I like, at least once a year, I eat an olive and I still hate it. It makes me gag. It's just not good. But someday I'm going to love olives. I'm going to acquire the taste for them. Okay. We need to acquire the taste for godliness. And, and here's how you do that. You just keep going back over and over and over again until you realize that it's good. So here's the thing, following Jesus, a lot of the time, it, it, it seems like it's the worst. It seems like you're missing out on stuff, like it's hard. You don't want to do it. You don't like it. You just keep going back. And, and here's the thing, should we do stuff for, should we do the right stuff for the, with the right reasons, the right motivations? Yes, but sometimes you need to do the right stuff with the wrong motivation. You don't want to do it. You wake up. You don't want to read your Bible. Just get up and read the Bible. You don't have to love it, but you do it enough, you'll acquire the taste for it. You probably are never going to like washing the dishes. And if you do, that's weird. But just wash the dishes. Serve your family. Keep doing it. Be disciplined. And over time, you're, you will acquire the taste for it. Now, is that true of the Christian life? Yes. But that cannot be your entire Christian life. You're going to live a rough life if that's all you got, what do you have to add to discipline? You have to add desire. Desire. You got to want to. And here's what I want you to see is that God actually encourages us towards desire, not away from it. So, so let me just call this what it is. We all ultimately do what we want. Just as human beings, you're going to do what you want. 
When you sin, no one made you. You, you wanted to sin in that moment. You might have known it's dumb, but you, you wanted it, so you did. And so the battle to follow Jesus is a battle of desire. In other words, you got to learn to love Jesus more than you love sin. You got to learn to delight in Jesus more than you delight in sin. But, but here's where we get this wrong is I think we tend to think of Christianity in terms of sort of limiting desires. So, so here's what I mean by that. There's all of this stuff over here that, that I want, kind of selfishness and sin, and, and I want it, but I know that I'm not supposed to have it. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and refrain from doing it. I'm going to do what I should do. Okay, it's like you're eating broccoli. Like nobody wants to do it, but you know it's good for you. And, and then sin is like the cake. And you want to eat that cake, but you're going to try and force yourself to eat broccoli. But here's what I want to say. That's actually not true. Like that makes God out to be sort of this cosmic killjoy. Like he just hates fun and desires, right? Like, no, he is actually good. He's actually better. And he wants you to pursue that desire. He wants you to pursue good desire to find him at the end of it. So this is sort of a gross analogy, but I didn't come up with it. So it's fine. So Mark Arendt says that sin is a chocolate covered turd. It's, it's tasty for a second and really gross after that. And I, okay, I get it. That's a weird analogy, but that's actually been remarkably effective in my life. <laughs> sin is not actually good. It tastes good for a second and then it's just, it's just terrible. Okay, so let me, let me tell you about this kind of battle in, in my life. So when I was in college, summers were just the worst, which doesn't make any sense because they should have been the best. I literally didn't have anything to do. And, and it should have been great, but here's why it was the worst is because you get, and some of you college students, you're figuring this out, right? You get out of your regular rhythms, you get out of your community, and it's just hard. Sometimes you go back to old contexts and you just, you want to sin, right? And so summer or any type of break from school always was tough for me. And so this was my strategy going in the summers. Try super hard not to sin. So I would like, I'd write down like the sins that I'd know that I would be tempted to do and I would like pray through them and just be like, hey, don't do that. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it again. I'm gonna... and, and then I, I was reading, I forget who it was, but I was reading about some, some like old, dead, holy Christian guy and he used to get up at four in the morning to pray. So I was like, okay, I guess that's what I gotta do. So I get up at like four, 4.30 and don't be impressed, it was terrible. I would just sit there and fall asleep and hate my life. <laughs> And this was my strategy to follow Jesus. And, and, and my whole thing was, Jordan, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Which if that's your strategy to follow Jesus, you are like an alcoholic walking into a bar, buying a beer, sitting at a table and staring at it going, don't drink it, don't drink it, don't drink it. It's just a matter of time. Need a perspective change. And for me, that was somebody coming along and saying, dude, can you just enjoy your life a little bit? Like, can we just all, can we chill out? How about this? Why don't you write down the things that just fill you with joy? That just satisfy your soul, that you just love, and that makes you remember that God is good. Make a list of those things and just focus on doing that this summer. And it, it radically changed my life. 
That, that shift in perspective might not seem like that much of a difference. I am a different person because of that, that idea. He doesn't encourage us away from desire. He encourages us towards it. And this psalm is God looking at us and begging us to see how beautiful he is. He's looking at us and saying, you want to be satisfied and nothing's working. I have everything that you've been looking for. I'm what you want. I'm what you desire. Come to me. He wants to satisfy you with good and that good is himself. But like we said, that doesn't happen naturally. You have to teach yourself how to do it. And that's what I love about this Psalm is David is listing out all these things that are true about God. But I actually think from reading it, I think that he's doing that because in the moment he doesn't really believe it. When you go back to the start of the Psalm, what's he doing? He's commanding his soul to praise. He's saying, bless the Lord, oh my soul. So he's not saying, I am currently blessing God. He's saying, soul, you have to get it together. You have to bless God. You have to remember how good he is. You have to praise him. And then he gives us the way that you do that. So how do you command your soul to praise God? He says, forget not all of his benefits. That's the heart of the Christian life. You command your soul to praise by choosing to experience the benefits of God over and over and over again, to remember the benefits of God when you forget. So I think, I think most of you know that, that uh, Jessamy and I are pregnant and she's about, she's about 17 weeks along and we're having a blast with it. But here's the deal. It's super surreal for me. She, it's not as much for her because she's like growing a human child inside of her, which takes a lot of work. I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out. And so the weird part about that is, is I'm, I'm like excited for this, but it, it feels surreal. It, it doesn't feel real to me. And so we're doing all of this stuff to try and like make it feel real. And I, I, I just keep having these, these moments where it's like my kid is here, like he's inside of, her, inside of her, like that was kind of a weird way to say it, but <laughs> my kid exists, right? Like I, I, gotta, I gotta remember that. So I, I tried to make her start listening to like Bach and Beethoven because I hear that makes your kid smart. I know that's like, I know that's like first year parenting stuff. That's like rookie stuff. I'm aware, okay, I'm still doing it. And we have this app that like every week tells us about like what stage in development she's in and it tells us how big our baby is and it's always a fruit. Like a couple weeks ago was a kumquat. I don't even know what a kumquat is or how big it is. But my baby was the size of a kumquat. And I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. My baby's a kumquat. And, and so we're doing all of this stuff. Why? Because that's real, right? Like my, my, my kid exists. And by the grace of God, I'm, I'm going to get to meet him or her soon. But I keep forgetting that. And so I have to make what is real become real in my soul. I have to teach myself to experience it, to feel it, to know it. And progressively over time, it's starting to feel more and more real to me. Okay, that's what it's like to follow God. You have to teach yourself to remember what's already true. Because you will forget. What's true is, 
is that he has compassion on you, you will think that he's separating himself from you. What's true is, is that he satisfies you with good. You will think that sin will satisfy. Look, this is going to happen to me tomorrow. So I, I'm preaching a sermon on it. I'm going to forget it tomorrow. So we're going on vacation, which is great and all, but I have to get up at like 3.30 in the morning. I'm going to feel like I got hit by a bus. And I'm going to hate life a little bit. I'm going to try and get Jessamy out of bed. She's not going to want to get out of bed. And I'm going to get mad about that, but I'm not going to say anything because she's cute and pregnant. <laughs> and, and then we're going to go to the airport, and I'm going to sit on this plane, and I'm going to remember again that there's no airplane that's Jordan size. I'm going to like be all scrunched up. My knees are going to be in the front of the seat. There's going to be some dude taking the armrest, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be mad at the world. And then I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to literally do whatever I want, but I'm going to find a way to be selfish. I'm going to find a way to be discouraged. And in those moments, I have a decision to make. I have a choice. When I'm feeling like what I know to be true, that I'm unbelievably blessed, that I could have everything that I, I could ever imagine, I'm going to forget that. I'm not going to know that that's true. And I have a choice to ingrain that into my soul or to live in a terrible life of sin. And for you, that'll be the rest of your life. Will God always be your biological dad that he, that he created you? Is that, is that always true? Yes. But you will have a decision every day for the rest of your life on whether you experience that beautiful reality or whether you live for something that won't ever satisfy you. I want us to be a church that sees the beauty of God and responds to him in worship by remembering who he is. I want us to be a church that sings, not just when we're together, but every single day. I want us to be a church that worships Jesus with our lives through being satisfied in him. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks that you satisfy. I forget that every day of my life. Thanks for reminding me of that. Thanks that you are beautiful and amazing, um, it, that, that following you isn't just eating broccoli, that it's, it's awesome. And yeah, it's super hard, but it's so good. And so remind us of that as a church. Remind us how to be worshipers, how to feel and experience you as our dad. God, would we not be people who have all these intellectual truths, all these theological ideas, but that are cold towards you. Give us a, a heart that just loves and enjoys you every day. Help us to fight for that and to believe that you're worth it. Yeah, we love you. Amen.